This is Small Changes, Stark Reality, on jasoncharles.net. What's up, party people? Welcome to yet another episode of Stark Reality with your host, myself, Small Change, a.k.a. James Deere. In this episode, we interview a true badass mother, researcher, librarian, rock and roller all the way, Julie Turley. And she is from the Salt Lake City area and is actually working on an oral history of the Salt Lake City punk rock scene from the 80s. When she was coming up, kind of in the vein of Please Kill Me, etc., etc., and those kind of books. She's also uh, doing a survey on rock and metal music mothering, the role of musical parenting. There should be a link if you are a mother and like to uh, participate in that. Anyway, she has got a fascinating story and uh, has a lot of insights. And we recorded this uh, some months ago. If you're listening to this in the current uh, corona epidemic, <laughs> might sound slightly dated, but uh, it's a good conversation and it follows with a nice mix of some underground 80s uh, Salt Lake City punk rock selections from Julie. So let's get into it. Stark Reality with Julie Turley. Reality with Julie Turley. Is that how you say your name even? I don't even know. It is. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> how are you? I'm so excited to be here, Jim. I know. It's very exciting, right? It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell people a little bit about yourself. You, um, I guess you're a librarian by trade, mm-hmm. and, and you teach as well, right? Well, I'm a college librarian, and I teach as part of my librarian duties. I teach information literacy and research and um, just one-off classes at the moment. Um, I, um, a couple of years ago, when I was a librarian in Harlem, taught non-traditional students, uh, mostly women of color, to be Wikipedia editors. Wow. Wild. And how would you go about like putting together a course like that? Um, I partnered with the WikiEd Foundation, and they actually have a course shell that you can embed into with a curriculum. And But I adapted it a little bit. Um, <coughs> it was challenging, but uh, great. Um, just trying to get um, students to contribute content, of course, that's not already on Wikipedia. and To um, kind of expand the perspective a little bit, I mm-hmm. guess. And women of color are underrepresented uh, underrepresented as editors on Wikipedia. Most of the people who contribute content um, are men, white men, actually. Isn't that wonderful? They've done a great job running the world so far. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're also a pretty hardcore music head for many, many, many years. Um, you kind of, I, I guess you grew up in Arizona, but you went to school in uh, Utah, right? <coughs> I did. I um, uh, So I was uh, raised in the West, um, Yuma, Arizona, some Southern California a bit. Um, always into music from, um, from like, you know, first grade on, loved listening to the radio, loved the Partridge Family, 
got gifted Partridge Family albums for Christmas. Classic. And, um, wrote David Cassidy a letter when I was eight. Of course. <laughs> and um, uh, the original boy band, right? The original, uh, yeah, kind of the, when the original well, sort of you know kid pinups, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you had the Monkees before them, and right. they were, yeah. Um, but and then um, I'm a I was raised Mormon. Um, I'm fifth generation Mormon on both sides. Both my parents have Mormon lineage, lineage <coughs> that goes all the way back to the 19th century. My great 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 grandfather, I think that's three greats, uh, was a friend of Joseph Smith's and was one of the first Mormons. That's pretty wild. It's wild, yes. <laughs> And Mormons actually are really into music. Music is a very important part of their worship. You know, we know about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Um, Brigham Young, who was the second prophet after Joseph Smith was murdered in Nauvoo, Illinois, in jail, um, took the rest of the Mormons out to Salt Lake City, (coughs) where they established an alternative parallel community. And music was a really big part of the community. Um, so I always grew up singing. I always grew up um, uh, being very integrated into music. But it wasn't until I got to Brigham Young University, um, which is the Mormon-owned college, <coughs> that I got into punk rock. <coughs> and now, tell how did you kind of get into punk rock being a Mormon? And, and, and there was a scene there, I guess, right? There was a whole... Yeah, well, I, um, I started in the fall of 1982, and I came from the low desert of Yuma, Arizona, where uh, it was very isolating. It was pre-internet. Um, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine from Yuma who said that he used to find rock scene magazines at the Circle K. Amazing. In Yuma, I know. Um, but uh, so there were all these kids from California, up and down the coast of California, who were super cool punk rock Mormons, like mod Mormons. Uh, ska was really big that that first year at BYU. Um, and so I was very entranced by these kids in the dorms, these cool kids from Southern California. Um, and ended up sort of falling in with that group. Um, and um, driving up to Salt Lake City about 45 minutes north and attending my first punk show in April of 1983 in the basement of a frat house of the University of Utah. And that band that was headlining was Minor Threat. Insane. Who were only a band for about 18 months, two years. They were just, a, you know, Ian Mackay, of course, is a legend in the DC hardcore scene and just the hardcore scene at large but um it was an amazing show um uh his mic went out and everybody in the basement of that grimy little frat house like knew the words and screamed along with him and then afterwards some um fellow mormons uh, and uh, me went up after and talked to ian and um of course mormons loved minor threat do you know why well, because it's the whole straight edge yes, thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Didn't know I was going to be tested and here. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm an, I'm a, you know, I'm an academic. That's right, an academic, exactly. <laughs> and um, so I remember writing my dad about this group that was um, sort of, uh, s- they were from a subculture. They were against the dominant culture, but they were. Um, they were in rebellion, but they were in rebelling in a way which, um, which, which Mormons could understand. Which they were, they were, um, you know, they weren't having sex, they weren't drinking, they weren't smoking, and that's exactly what was expected of us Mormons at BYU. We weren't allowed to drink, smoke, have sex before marriage. Um, you couldn't even get Coca-Cola on campus because it had caffeine in it. Um, so we ate a lot of sugar and listened to rock and roll. I mean, ro- rock really was our only allowable vice. And Utah happened to have <coughs> some really powerful album-oriented rock stations, classic rock stations. And um, But the most influential station was a public radio station called KRCL Radio. Um, pub- um, y- user... Um, 
listener supported with some underwriting. I think even at that time, it started in the late 70s and there was a show um, called Behind the Zion Curtain. Now Zion, uh, you know, it's a reggae term, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I guess it goes back to the Bible, but yes, yeah. in, in my in my <laughs> world, yes, more of a reggae term. Yeah, yeah I'm sitting with Jen, so it's a reggae term. But so, you know, Utah was considered Zion for the early Mormons, and so behind the Zion curtain, so we, you know, everybody who loved punk rock considered themselves sort of behind um, a curtain in a way. Well, that was like, you know, growing up in L.A., Long Beach, that was Orange County was behind the orange curtain, of course. Really? Yes. So oh, many curtains. So <laughs> many <laughs> curtains? That's so interesting. Many curtains to cross. <laughs> <laughs> so Brad Collins uh, and Susan Brown had that show together. Susan Brown was from New York, and she was living in Utah. And um, so Brad was like the like the godfather of punk in, in uh, Salt Lake. He's like, I think he's 60 now, so... Um, born in 1959, which sort of puts him in the same age range um, uh, for that. Right, classic period or whatever. Yes, yeah. Um, and in 1984, he and his girlfriend, Daphne, who's very punk. I mean, the thing is, is that if you looked punk then, you know, it was... Visually, there are only a million people, million point five people in 1980 in Utah. Right. So the scene, everybody was going to punk rock. Was it was really small. It was like a, I read Viv, Viv Albertine's book about being a punk rocker in London in '76 or something, right, and right. it was just a really small scene. And um, a, a woman stood out if she was wearing Doc Martens in London of 1976. It was conservative. Era. Well, it was also conservative in Utah as well. Um, yeah, I mean, even on like uh, podcasts that I did with my friend Clifton, we were talking about trying to buy docks in the 80s in L.A. I mean, it was it seems so like, oh, it's everywhere. and It's like every mall. But it was a thing like you really, the, you know, people stood yeah. out because it was kind of a, a subculture, you know. Absolutely. Um, I so I cut my that first year I cut my hair off and I had how did your parents think about that at the time they, <laughs> they like I mean you're going they a little too, too much with the sugar and rock <laughs> my okay? grand my grand <laughs> well I got called into university standards several times so there was a standards office making sure that all the students uh, were observing the rules Kinda like a homeowners association making sure your home was painted the right color exactly. that your hair was the right color exactly. and blank Exactly. That's a really good metaphor, Jim. Sorry, yeah. I'll stop butting no, in here. No, no, it's good. <laughs> but um, so Brad, so Brad Collins, who had the Beyond the Zion Curtain opened Ranch Records in 1984, which was the first punk radio show, and he opened it just to get music for his show. And uh, it was under the Freeway Viaduct um, in the the sort of western heel of Salt Lake City near Pioneer Park where all the um, homeless um, guys hung out. And uh, so that's where you went to get your punk rock gear. And I remember buying Beastie Boys Polywog Stew 7-inch there when they had Kate, that, that girl drummer. Right, exactly. Yeah. The OG Beastie's hardcore era. Exactly, stuff. exactly. So and I remember being really afraid to go into the store just was so intimidating and right. so cool. And um, Anyway, so Brad started, um, well, I think there was somebody before Brad, but he started bringing in shows um, at the Indian Center, which was uh, a Native American cultural center. And really, that was, um, that was the place they found to have shows. And then nationally touring bands started to stop into Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City became a stopover, like between Denver and San Francisco. Um, so... During my time at Brigham Young University, you, you kind of timed it where th that had just started, because maybe you came a few years before. There might have been people into it, but it wasn't like a place. So within a few years, you had a place you could go, a place you could actually buy some of exactly. these records. Exactly, there was that scene coalescing around the record store, and then the Innit Center, which the the um, the Native American um, administrators of that space let the punk rockers rent from them in the evening. 
Um, and that, uh, so that before that, there was a place called the Roxy downtown, but that was sort of proto punk. But this was sort of the hardcore era. So Black right. Flag. So I saw Black Flag many, many times. Um, Husker Du, the Meat Puppets, um, the Minutemen. Um, they all came through the Indian Center. Wild. It was. And so that's probably quite an influence. And then um, obviously at a certain point, which I know we'll get into in a minute because you're kind of documented, there was, I guess, seen, you know, bands kind of coming out of Salt Lake itself. So were these people kind of influenced by all these shows? And then, of course, like many other places, okay, we'll start our own band, essentially. Exactly. So, so... Um, I've been um, collecting, so I, I love music oral histories. There are many of them that document regional music scenes. The most famous one being Please Kill Me, the Lakes McNeil, Jillian McCain. Um, yeah, which is sort of the oral history of punk kind of centered around New York, but obviously, you know. And most particularly CBGB. Right. Um, so yeah, and then there's a Detroit book called Detroit Rock City. There's a LA one, right? There's an LA one called We've Got the New Trombone. Yeah, exactly. Shout out to my man Fast Freddy who's in that. Yeah, right. Um, there's a San Francisco book. Um, so anyway, I thought Salt Lake City deserved a book. Even if it had regional appeal, I felt like it was a history that deserved documenting. Particularly well, because you lived it. Because I lived it, and nobody knows that this happened. Nobody outside of Salt Lake City is aware that this happened, except via, they have some inkling via the film SLC Punk. Okay. Which was a feature film, not a documentary, uh, directed by James Marandino. For me, it was so exciting, because I was coming up from, from, you know, what was called Happy Valley. I was coming up from Brigham Young, coming up to the big bad city. Salt Lake City seemed like a big, intimidating city right. at the time. And then um, sometimes taking the bus and then walking 13 long, long blocks. So Brigham Young, made the streets really wide and the blocks really long so you could turn a team of oxen around in the middle of the street. Wow. <laughs> yes. So it's going back, going yeah. back a few years. Yeah. So it just, it took a long time to walk down to the Indian Center from the bus. Um, and eventually the, uh, the Native American um, owners of the Indian Center got sick of the punk rockers trashing the back bathroom. I would imagine. Kicking <laughs> in the door. I was going to say, like, how did that work? <laughs> Breaking the windows, throwing it's up. It's like, you, you damn kids. like, okay, you damn kids, you know. Exactly. So they sort of abused the privilege of having shows there. And by 1987, there were no more shows at the Indian Center. And right. And kind of... See, it change, changed as everything does. Everything comes to an end eventually. Right, right. But so the book I'm document the book I'm I'm working on documents um, the scene from 1977, pre-Indian Center, where you had these very very scene was tiny. Um, they had this space called the Roxy, which was a bar owned by um, some mafia brothers who were in Salt Lake City for some reason. The, the Russos. Um, down under Sam Weller's Books, which was a really old, old um, bookstore on Main Street, just down from Salt Lake Temple. And so you had the No Rods, you had the Atheists, um, and a lot of those... These are our Salt Lake City bands. Yeah, a lot of these... That were from that era, Exactly, too. and okay. there weren't any nationally touring punk rock bands coming through at the time, but they were just being... They were just directly influenced by... The bands they could find out about. The yeah. records of um, Plasmatics, the Sex Pistols... Um, uh, what they could find out from what was going on in New York at the time, um, just trying to make their own versions of that in response in the middle of the high desert, really, pre-internet. Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, it's kind of insane. And as you said, it's more than just like a regional story. I mean, in beyond even you living it, it's kind of, it's crazy because you just, people don't think like, okay, it's, yeah, it's a Mormon thing, so they're not going to have, but that's kind of the magic of, music and stuff even again pre-internet pre-even touring bands people still find a way find out about some records and decide they want to make something which a lot of those records end up now being worth you know a shit ton of money because <laughs> some yeah. limited pressing in some regional area right. you know but some great records you and know no matter where it's from you know exactly yeah um and um just 
trying to find uh, clips of these bands. Um, just YouTube, you can find a few. I don't even know if if a lot of them um, if those bands put anything out. Right. See, that's another thing, too, was that band The Screamers from L.A. that all these people were influenced by, but then they never even put anything out. I mean, you can find some bootleg that came out a few years ago. You know, so that's what's kind of crazy is like even thinking about the bands that were kind of insane and then they didn't even, they might put out one seven inch. It doesn't even really represent what they were doing. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. But for some, you know, I just, uh, I don't know. I just, it's like these secret, scrappy, receding histories. I just think it's important to gather the information and, um, um just die just have it out there yeah before it kind of disappears exactly. because i think what's kind of cool from your background you know being a, a librarian a researcher in a way but also you know being a fan then you can kind of combine that more yeah. than maybe someone like myself who's just some stoner dj who's not going to go to the trouble <laughs> i'm just saying like you're going because that's what you've been doing is in in the vein of like the Legs McNeil book and whatever, you're mm -hmm. going out and you're interviewing all these people. We, I'm sure you know a lot of them personally from back in the day, you mm -hmm. know, to try and capture this history in a way. Because I think what was interesting about the Legs McNeil book is when you read it, I forget what year it came out, but now quite a few of those people are not alive anymore. Exactly. It's over Which is kind, which yeah. is kind of crazy. Like, it's good he captured that even when he did, which was still, of course, way after the fact of when it happened. But yeah, I'd grab it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the people I interviewed who was in a band called LDS, which is the same acronym as the Mormon Church, Latter-day Saints. Right, right, right. That's hilarious. <laughs> okay, see, that's some inside <laughs> shit. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. So Greg May, um, I interviewed him uh, uh, one of my trips, one of my forays out into Salt Lake City to collect these interviews, and he died about three months after I got the interview. Um, yeah, you can't really predict this stuff in this wonderful world we live in, like what's going to happen with mm -hmm. people, you know. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really, uh, you know, it's, it's, like I said, just the concept of, uh, you know, collecting these things where especially when people just don't even think about it or would easily ignore a scene like that. But it's like, again, you know, documenting it because especially the concept of maybe it's even a little more special because it's a place that you wouldn't think that there'd be a scene like that. Well, exactly. And that's that was my interest um, in it. And that was always my interest in it when I was living it, too. It's just like this is so amazing that... Um, I have access to it, and this is making my life so much more interesting than it would have been otherwise. Um, because, you know, I didn't really fit into mainstream Mormonism, although I was observing all the rules and <laughs> doing all the things that would keep me in college and not get kicked out, um, pushing the boundaries a little vi visually, but that's about it. But so I could have access to this music which made me feel f that I was living in a more free way than I actually was. Right, right. Nice. And you've been working on this for a while, right? About five years. Nice. Mm -hmm. So do, are you, at a certain point, do you, you feel like you're going to have enough information or are you still kind of like gathering? Like, what do you think you are at in this um, project? I'm still gathering. I've actually started to compile it and weave it together. Yeah, because I, I think you, you have to kind of weave the yeah. stories together. And bring, how they bring all the voices together. Right. Because um, I've... Um, the stories are actually really moving, and everybody sort of echoes my sentiment, like, punk rock made my life more interesting in Utah. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and that's, and that's what the working title of the book. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, that's not a bad title. <laughs> um, but that's what art does, right? It's like transcendent. It helps you transcend your situation. Right, right, right. And uh, in terms of that, you're still um, obviously following a lot of rock stuff. Like you have an entry in some uh, rock encyclopedia or something. Well, you know, I love lots of different kinds of um, music that falls under the rubric of rock and roll. So I love heavy metal. I pr um, presented current research I'm doing with another librarian at the Modern Heavy Metal Music Conference in Helsinki last, this, just this past June. Um, we are <coughs> doing social and behavioral science research 
um, and interviewing women who are mothers and who have identified um, uh, with the heavy metal or rock and roll subcultures and just um, seeing um, how that particular identity affects their, their identity as parents or mothers and what their experience has been um, in that scene. See, this is what I think is kind of amazing because you kind of, are, like I said, you're approaching it. I think it's a nice like combination of like taking academia, but then you know you sometimes have this sort of low art, high art mm -hmm. kind of corniness dichotomy. But it's like no, let's like look at you know moms who are into punk rock and metal because of course probably society would you know I think less of now because tattoos and again mm -hmm. all this stuff are more accepted. But I'm sure. You know, around the time when you or I were growing up, you know, it's like, obviously, if, if there was a mom with tattoos and a skull, they're like, oh, how can you be raising your kid correctly and whatever, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, what, so maybe kind of breaking yeah. some of those stereotypes. Right, yeah. So that, I mean, we're also doing interviews. We have an online survey. This is being sort of governed by the Institutional Research Board. We had to get approval for all of this from our institutions. Um, so it's it's real legit social science research that we're, we're doing. Um, so if anybody wants to contact me about that survey. Um, nice. Well, we'll put a, I'll put yeah, a link in on the site great. when it's on there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I've, I've been doing amazing interviews. What I found um, is that, um, is that uh, in not, well, maybe the difference with these moms is that they are less willing to give up their identities um, for, for in the process of mothering. So they 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 hold on to that identity pretty tenaciously. Right. So it's almost like if you become a mother, it's almost like you sort of erase what you were before because now you're a mother. Exactly. You're here to like just take care of. So that's kind of interesting. It sort of gives someone um, just more of a to hold on to their personal perspective. Mm -hmm. Like you're beyond just being a mother. Exactly. And it's seen as self-care. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. That's been an interesting discovery that we've made. So that wasn't even something you were anticipating when you started um, this? It was something that was sort of like um, a vague notion that I had about it. But, uh, I mean, we interviewed um, one local mom who's actually now a grandmother who was uh, her band in the, was it maybe the early 80s, was opening up for Johnny Thunder, Thunders? Yeah, yeah. No, I, no. <laughs> she was um, very pregnant and actually uh, went into labor before the gig. Um, the hospital was not that far from Irving Plaza where the gig was, so she gave birth and then made it and played the show. That's... <laughs> <laughs> so this is what I'm talking That's about. That's insane. That sort of tenacious grip on like um, that identity and her role as a rock and roller. Just as important as a role as a, as a mom. That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. That's amazing. But yeah, I, I, do, I think it's kind of like an interesting crossroads because, like I said, I feel like, yeah, I mean, why shouldn't like academia or that kind of higher art like look at some of the stuff that obviously influences so many people in their lives? Like, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when this past year, we presented that research at a mother studies conference. So mother studies is um, now a discipline in, in the academic world as well as metal studies. So at the heavy metal conference, we met scholars from like 13 different countries who descended on Helsinki to talk about their metal music-related research. And it's serious. They're so this metal conference, is it actually a music conference or is it, but it, they have like a sort of side, like academia kind of thing or? It's strictly academic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. People are presenting scholarly papers, scholarly research. Uh, into different aspects of, of metal studies. That's wild. So That's how long wild. has this been going on for? Um, I think for five years. It's this Finnish guy who's organized it. It always happens around um, the time of the Tosca Music Festival in downtown Helsinki. Um, so the tradition is on the last day of the conference, which is a half day that day, everybody goes to the first day of, the, of Tosca together, which I did. I went to one day of Tuska, which was amazing. Um, 
yeah, it blew my mind. I had really been to a, a music festival in a very long time, and right. this was all metal. Right, right, um, right. There was a booth where you could get corpse paint. <laughs> of course. <laughs> different faces. <laughs> Yeah. That's wild. No, I'd never seen Anthrax before. You know, I'm from you know, this New York City band. I'd never seen them here, but I see them in Helsinki. Exactly, <laughs> of course, of course. Um, yeah, it was. Um, that was amazing. Um, so I just sort of wandered around there all day long. Amazing, mm-hmm. amazing. In, in terms of, I know that you're like a rock and roll head, and obviously an academic. So, I mean, have you been kind of paying attention? Like, have you seen? In the, in the time that you've been involved with, obviously, being a, a librarian and teaching, have you kind of seen academia kind of open up to more of this stuff over the years? Um, or? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been going on since the 60s, actually, when pop culture, I mean, with Susan Sontag, Notes on Camp, you know, um, pop culture is seen as, a, as an area of serious study. Um, you know, there are, uh, I think there were Madonna conferences in the 80s and people think, like Camille Paglia, who's a scholar at University of the Arts in Philadelphia, kind of controversial. She wrote in a scholarly way about Madonna um, back in 19, like in the early 90s. Um, this is um, taking, like um, putting a scholarly lens on popular music is not that new. Right. But um, I think it's... Um, branching out into music. So Madonna has is seen as nuanced or challenging notions of sexuality, of sexuality or feminism. feminism. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so heavy metal has been this denigrated genre. Um, well, it's, it's like heavy metal parking lot or something. Yeah, That's sort of the general person's like some stoner waiting to go to a Judas Priest concert, you know? So it's classist, you know? So yes, it's that's true. It is like classist. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Well, that's what I think is kind of interesting because you can look, that's what I'm saying about like high art, low art. You can look at academia as sort of classist in a mm-hmm. way where it's going to favor someone that, oh, I have a PhD and we're studying this stuff seriously, but then you know, to actually go into kind of subculture scenes and, and look at it because it obviously has a profound influence on all of our lives, you know, it yeah, shapes us. Absolutely, know? and heavy metal music is found in um, every single country of the world. Right. You know, in some fashion. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's true subcultures. It's very international, yeah. So that's what I think is super cool. <laughs> What has kind of? I mean, I guess you're no longer Mormon, right? I, I would, um, or or I consider myself post-Mormon. I think. What does that mean exactly? Um, for me, it means that Mormonism is still a part of my identity, but I'm not practicing, and um, I'm allowing myself to experience a lot of anger about the ways in which I was raised. Um, it's a patriarchal religion. It's very sexist. Right. Um, Men have the men are in the positions of power. There's no way that women can have ac- any access to the priesthood except through their husbands um, or designated leaders, male leaders. Um, it has a history of polygamy, which is but also slanted from a very male standpoint. So it's you know well, it's polygyny. Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah. so that is the technical of just the men having more wives, but not the other way around. Yeah, per se. yeah. And that was from Joseph Smith, who made up some theology. He said an angel with a drawn sword told him to take more wives. And Harold Bloom, who is this Jewish scholar, this very influential Jewish scholar who just died, was very fascinated by American religion, among many other things. Just So Joseph Smith is just very sexually oriented. Um, but... You know, uh, it was part of the theology that Mormons needed wives to get into the higher degrees of, of heaven. And the FLDS, the, the fundamentalist uh, Mormons who are on the periphery of Utah, the physical periphery of Utah, many of whom have been imprisoned because of sexual assault of, of women and children in their communities. Um, because whenever something is secret, there's a potential for abuse, a very high potential of, of right. abuse. Um, so, um, I mean, I have a lot of anger. So, in Mormonism, I wasn't. I was told that masturbation was wrong. Um, that I was very alienated from my body. And right. I think, right. Um, 
It didn't, you know, you weren't supposed to touch anything. <laughs> you know, it's, this is your own body. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. And you have people, you have men above you telling you what to do with your own body. Right. And um, referencing that this, this is actually God. I mean, uh, <laughs> so there was a lot of guilt. I mean, this is not just... Um, uh, uh, something that is part of Mormonism, but most Christian, if not um, you know, Judeo-Christian religions. So, um, um, and uh, I kind of wish that I had not given that so much authority. But sometimes, you know, like you said, you're fifth-generation Mormon. It's kind yeah. of hard to, as a little kid, to even decipher what that means, that it's probably like, well, you're yeah. going to be Mormon, and we're moving to Utah, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's <laughs> yes. it's kind of like, it's, I mean, I guess you get perspective on that, obviously, down the, down the road, right. you know? And yes. is there, like, a large sort of post-Mormon type of... Like, is there communities where people kind of talk about this, or? Well, there is now because of the internet. There right, are um, right. a lot of Mormon, uh, post-Mormon Facebook groups. There's a very influential podcast called Mormon Stories. Um, a Thoughtful Faith is another, um, and uh, uh, <coughs> Mormon Stories is run by John Delin, who was actually excommunicated because of this podcast. He wow. Was, seen as an apostate, as someone who is actually leading people away from the church, when all he really wanted to do was forge a middle way Mormonism, because with Mormons... So he wasn't even considering himself fully post-Mormon, he just wanted to kind of... He was a orthodox, he was practicing. He was, he was a, still practicing. Yeah, but he was just But then he was kind of tossed out. Yeah, because he was seen as too powerful, and his podcast was, was seen as leading people out of the church. Right, right. Um, I actually ran into him at the Book of Mormon musical, which we both ended up seeing the second night it played on the earth. Um, That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> he was in previews, and I had I knew him from the podcast, and he had flown out from Utah to attend Book of Mormon because you know we had to see it. We didn't even know if it was going to be good or not. Right. We just had to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Requiring post-Mormon viewing. So the thing is, is like, I, you know, I attended church out here until 2011, until this very, um, sort of, maybe until 2015, I'm turn. no, it was 2011. I'm very interested in Mormonism as a topic. Right. Um, it's still really fascinating to me. I'm, I, I still want to know what they're doing, how they're positioning themselves. I still love to talk to my friends who are still in it. My brother's still in it. He's very thoughtful and nuanced about it. I think he's lost a lot of his belief, but his being a part of the culture is still really important to him. He's a Sunday school teacher. Right. Um, he brings in texts outside of the church, and he's very scholarly in his own way um, regarding Mormonism. Um, Mormon scholars in 1993, there were six Mormon scholars who were excommunicated from for... Um, so that's an, that's an yeah. interesting thing to follow then. Again, like your academic background is kind of like following almost like, okay, who is even within Mormon religion is trying to push it a little bit further and kind of seeing where the, maybe the church centers sort of decide like how to kind of keep it reined in from Absolutely. their perspective. And you know? they're hemorrhaging members by doing this too. That's wild. The internet, they're especially hemorrhaging millennial members. And those are the members that they actually need to keep. To ensure that the church um, keeps it going, keeps going, and um, because of the internet and all of these things that have come out that have contradicted the the established church narratives about church history, um, it's disturbing to a lot of people. That's wild. Mm -hmm. That's really crazy. Yeah, I mean, just like polygamy. Um, You know, Joseph Smith. Well, also just there's a lot of racist under, you know, at least what I read about. Like if you were black, the original yeah. context is you couldn't go to heaven and stuff. That was written into the chart. But again, yeah, not, not to excuse it as a good thing, but obviously stuff was a little more blatant and raw in whatever the 1800s or whenever well, this was written. And the thing about blacks and the priesthood, the uh, black men did not have access to the priesthood. They could not 
um, be ordained as members of the priesthood, like all men are in Mormonism. It's not like Catholicism where they're, you know, you go into, um, it's this parallel track. You're sort of part of the main community, but you're ordained um, to be um, these ranks within the priesthood. And the black men didn't have access to that until like 1976, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember reading some stuff on Wikipedia at some point where it was like 60s and 70s that people were challenging it, and then they yeah. kind of like changed it around. Mm -hmm. And that was um, supposed revelation that came to Spencer W. Kimball, who was the prophet at the time. Exactly. Like, yeah. hey, My dad was so excited. We're going to look like the KKK and lose everybody if we yeah. don't suddenly have a revelation from God. <laughs> exactly. So his best friend was black and lived down the street. And my dad like ran down to tell him, Mr. Smith, that he could he be could, a priest now. He could be a Mormon now if he wanted to because blacks, black men could access the priesthood. I mean, it's kind of wild, all this <laughs> stuff. It is kind of crazy. I know, I know. But, you know, like I said, if you're part of that community and know so many people, then that's, that, it, that is kind of crazy to just see even how the Internet and stuff sort of slowly unravels some of this stuff. Right. And how, you know, how people react to it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, just with the punk rock uh, research I've done, um, I thought more of the bands would have been formed in... Um, rebellion against Mormonism, but uh, I didn't really find that. It's more like they were in rebellion against larger forces, you know, the whole Rock Against Reagan thing, which was something that permeated Utah, too. The nuclear, you know, the Cold War extended into that period. Right, right. Um, that became a punk rock cause that Utah punks felt um, just as aligned with as um, punks in larger music markets, so... Right. So how does I mean, I guess in terms of like politics, if, you, if you're looking at some of these bands like the Dead Kennedys or whatever, they have pretty leftist politics. And that's obviously an influence. But, you know, then you have conservative aspects of Mormonism. Like how did people who are within that scene kind of reconcile that? Well, or how did they kind of approach it? A, a lot of the punks that I talked to from Utah, um, their parents had stopped practicing, they weren't really raised Mormon, or they had moved to Utah. Um, there, one of them, Paul Booth, who was in um, one of the pre-Indian Center bands, the No Rods, very influenced by the Plasmatics, he had gone on a Mormon mission. Um, he got sent to LA on his Mormon mission and ended up seeing, he told me, he, he like left one night, went to go see Kiss, and went to go see the Runaways. He was completely rebellious on his mission. Right, right. <laughs> Um, but so, and then, um, they actually took a Mormon, um, uh, church song. I have to look up which one and Lent set it to like, you know, made it a punk rock song. So there was some of, of that element. And then the band LDS, um, but most of them were really just influenced by just, you know, the sex. Like, I can't tell you how many people I talked to inside of this, seeing the sex pistols in news coverage on TV is, like, just a very powerful influence. Yeah, I mean, I, I forget the film, but they were talking about that one Sex Pistols gig maybe in, like, 76 that members of the Buzzcocks and all these different yeah. bands were there. Right. Might have been, what was it, a factory record? Yeah, 24-hour party people. Yeah. But, like, you know, just, it is kind of crazy. Though the Sex Pistols kind of get dissed and please kill us. Because, of course, all the New York bands are like, ah, oh, these guys, me. please kill me. I mean, right. yeah. They're like, <laughs> they're like the fuck these motherfuckers that were just all put together by, by Malcolm. Malcolm. Yeah. It's kind of funny. You, th that book is kind of <laughs> funny. But because, again, you kind of just get perspectives that you wouldn't expect, you know. And I think that's kind of even what you're talking about with some of your, you know, research with, like, some of the mothers you know mothers that are like punk rock metal people or even this book you i think that's what's kind of interesting is you you start to get into something that especially you probably know a lot about living it but then you still learn things yeah absolutely i mean and a lot of these kids were just really into music and then um discovered this particular subgenre and um the schumann brothers um who were in this band, the Massacre Guys. The Massacre Guys were probably the most famous band to come out of Utah. They're referenced in the American Hardcore The The movie and book or whatever, yeah. Yeah. Um, and two of its members um, were recruited to be in um, 
the descendants. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. Um so I still need to talk to those guys. I I messaged Carl Alvarez who plays bass for the descendants. Um his girlfriend said she'd put in a good word for me. Because <laughs> she, you know, she's she was part of the scene in Utah. And there were zines. There was a zine called Zion Noise. Um, there was a zine called Slam, Salt Lake Area Music. And I have, I, I picked those up. I was so enchanted by this, like, subterranean world that was um, existing in spite of this gigantic temple downtown you right, know right <laughs> where my parents had gotten married and it's just the theocracy you know utah's really a theocracy right um, right a lot of the legislation is influ so influenced by mormonism in terms of its its liquor laws you know there are th all of the liquor stores are state owned you cannot move to utah and set up your own liquor store for right instance. there's yeah i was actually talking about this with uh some guests on my radio show because you know always warn them, you know, since my show is late, like once we get out to Jersey after 10 p.m., you can't buy booze because of the blue laws. And then you have those states that are more conservative. It's like, I think they call them the ABC stores or something where it's state-run liquor stores. So you can't even go to a liquor store. You go to a state-run liquor store. Right. I forget, like maybe New Hampshire or North Carolina. There's some states like that. I'm sure Utah is. Because any state where they're like, we don't like drinking, then that's the yeah. bare minimum, you know. Yeah. They make it basically as hard as possible to get alcohol. Yeah, they do. And I have friends who are bartenders, and it's very regulated in terms of how much alcohol can be in a cocktail Oh, they have the measured pours. Yeah, they do. Yeah, see, yeah. they do that in England and other places, but in, in America, generally, they don't. Yes, yeah, that's still the case. And, um, you know, it's it's a very red state, as you yeah. know. Yeah, so very socially conservative. Um, with this um, Salt Lake always having a Democratic mayor, just sort of... Well, see, I don't even, uh, yeah, see, I didn't even, like, realize the politics of that. So how does that work if it's sort of like a red state and almost like a kind of conservative religion? Why would they have a democratic, do they have, is there elements where they are kind of progressive in some ways or no? Well, Salt Lake City, um, because it was, uh, you know, the railroad came through, the Golden Spike where the East and West Oh, really? Road. That's yeah. where, okay, yeah, that's Yeah, that. I mean, there were people coming from, there were people coming from out there were Gentiles. So non-Mormons then were called Gentiles, just like the Jews. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so they were Gentiles coming in and uh, setting up secular spaces, businesses, or um, uh, resisting the grid. So Utah addresses all count out from the temple. Exactly, I've heard about that. And right. so there are some weird streets. Resisting which, the grid. Which... <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, like there's some weird streets, like I think uh, I can't remember, like Rio Grande or something, where um, those are Gentile streets. Those are streets set up by people who weren't Mormon who came to Salt Lake City. Um, but you know, the main department store downtown was ZCMI, Zion's Cooperative Men Mercantile Institution. That was a Mormon-owned store. Right. Um, so um, they had their own currency. Um, they had their own alphabet called the Deseret Alphabet. <laughs> yeah, so Brigham Young wanted, like, you know, we are going to do what the hell, you know, what we want. This is our own, this is our own country here. Right. Here, our own theocracy. That's what he wanted. He wanted a theocracy. Right. Um, so, um, and they had to give up the, officially give up the practice of polygamy in 1895 to become, and that's, that's when Utah was granted statehood to become a, a state in the Union. Um, so that was one of the bargaining chips. Yeah. That's really wild. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. crazy. And but then there was like, um, it was practiced secretly from there on out under right. the radar. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy thing. I mean, in terms of some of these, I guess, post-Mormon, I mean... Do people, I don't know, it's, it's, I mean, they must kind of look at it at a certain point, like yourself, because I look at you as, you know, someone that's obviously, like, into all these underground scenes and academic, like, kind of have your own identity as a woman, I guess, whatever, I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but I just don't look at you as someone being like, oh, I'm going to be subservient and all this stuff. I mean, do people kind of start to look like, is that a common thing in some of the post-Mormon thing? Uh, like, uh, you know, in terms of women being like, you know, fuck this kind of 
structure or is there even like men that even come around and kind of understand that it's even if they're benefiting well, from it it's still fucked up or sure i mean i mean um i mean the structure the sort of um sexist structure of things is something that's not just peculiar to mormonism no no that's you true know, yeah. absolutely no that is inherent in every religion yeah. true yeah we're not and even just in the culture at large i mean how right. there has still that's we still true. have not had a women president right i mean there's still a lot of sexism when it comes to politics yeah no that's true um, that's true <laughs> electing people to office i mean there's a lot of sexism you know yeah i guess in terms of like sexism in like a, a bigger scope like that like uh what would be like uh some things that you're kind of following within something like that like oh beyond even mormonism or beyond mormonism or, or even po politically within, yeah or like in terms of like well, you know, sexism or well i mean you know the uh, the why are we still having to defend roe v wade that's just right. incredible to me right you right. know i've been marching in support of abortion rights since I was in my 20s. That's for, for 30 years. Yeah, I've that's been, insane. I mean, why do we still have to do this? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I, I find a little frustrating online when I'm drifting away from, you know, just whatever, debating people, because I feel like the debate is just beneath us. It's kind of juvenile. It's almost like I look at some of the stuff that happens or it's almost like, is this, the you know, your junior high debate team, like... Let's pretend mm -hmm. to debate abortion. But, when, you know, yeah. if you grow up, maybe we shouldn't even be debating this anymore. Exactly. It's sort of unbelievable. Um, yeah. And, just, and, the, and I feel like that things have, like, gotten more, there's these, like, repressed, um, because of Trump's presidency, all of these sort of extremely, these extreme impulses have been sort of thawed and you know just some of the restrictions that certain states want to impose on women it's they're really kind of getting shocking. a green light because like a six week heart like um you can't get an abortion after six weeks right right like right before the, women even know that they're pregnant yeah and and they you know there were states almost passing it and then yeah kind of getting shut down but then right when you look at the president or even like how they're stacking the Supreme Court, you know, you have a rapist on the Supreme Court or, Ab you know. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So then you kind of wonder like, okay, of course, how are these people going to look at laws governing women's bodies? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, just to go back to the punk scene in the era that I'm tracking, um, there weren't any women banned. There weren't any women um, putting in their... <laughs> their ideas and their anger and their particular point of view. So it's a male point of view that I'm I've been like recording. So that's kind of interesting too. Yeah, I mean, I guess especially uh, you know being your background, like I mean, are you interviewing women people that were like were there women that were kind of supporting the scene in a way or kind of helping out? Yeah, I mean, um, my friends, um, my friend Ziva, uh, she started promoting shows. She helped put out the the, um, the zine, Zion Noise, but um, I haven't found any women yet who were actually creating content and performing and being out front and being visible in that way. Yeah, no, I mean, I was talking about this again with someone else I interviewed for this series, Belinda Becker, who was a, a woman DJ in the 80s when, again, there wasn't that many women DJs at that time. And it does seem like sometimes music is kind of a boys club. Mm -hmm. And then, of course... They that can be kind of shutting out, you know, maybe in the vein of they don't want to, sh they're shutting out other people that might take their spot. So then, of course, if there's a whole other gender of people that might potentially challenge them, so it's easier to kind of like, well, let's definitely all band together and, yes. you know, be extra critical of women. Or so then it becomes much hard. You have to be kind of like super ballsy, Wendy o. Williams type of mm -hmm. character to just push through all that bullshit. Yeah, you know? who I think is really amazing. She's like, I think she's one of the most underrated artists of the 20th century. I think she's really amazing a human and artist and yeah, so Yeah, let's brave. talk about Wendy o. Williams a little bit. Like, why would you say a statement like that beyond the obvious of her just being a badass? <laughs> um, well, sh uh, for one thing, because the plasmatics were so important to her and she had to leave it and she never got over it. I mean, that was her life. I mean, she really 
lived her art in a, in, in a way that was so realized. I mean, she where, did... Where were the Plasmatics from again? I forget. New, what New York. Oh, they're from New York. Okay. Yeah. Um, she's from upstate. Right. I've done a little research into her biography. I've written some fiction about her. I oh, keep wow. wanting to... Um, there's no biography. Do you know there's no book-length biography of Wendy O. Williams? Okay, yeah. I see that's wrong. That's totally... She has such an interesting life. She started out as a hippie. She used to, like, if I'm remembering right, she Wasn't was she, like, a vegan or vegetarian or something? Later on, oh, she okay. was an animal rights activist. Right. She was living in Connecticut. Um, she was, like, befriending squirrels. Um, she was just so... Uh, she felt so alienated, though, um, not to be on stage, um, just sort of being sort of faded out like she did. And she had... You know, she had three suicide attempts. Right, right, one right. Of, one of one was she stabbing herself in the kitchen, which you know. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but just kind of, you know, it's dark because you know you look at her as someone that could have influenced many other women to come forward. Exactly, she's she that was kind of person. Very mercurial, a pretty short career. Um, she should have. She should still be around. She should be a godmother of punk rock. Right. Around and right. Um, advising young women <laughs> about how to do this and how to channel their anger and energy. Right, um, right. So, I mean, we have Lydia Lunch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I saw, saw a picture with you on Instagram with her the other <laughs> who day. Who I just saw the other day. And, yeah, um, yeah. Who I was at her, uh, the documentary premiere. Um, another amazing character from upstate New York who... Yeah, what was her band? Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, I think. Yeah, or, that yeah. was her first band. And, right. And then she had a Part series of Part of the whole no-wave scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but... Um, a uh, product of, uh, you know, somebody who had been sexually abused as a kid, um, who'd been, uh, whose position as a woman had been completely taken advantage of, a girl had been completely taken advantage of. Um, and she, come, she runs away and comes to New York, and it's 19, it's the late 70s, and um, she becomes part of the no-wave scene, but she becomes like this, she calls it self-proclaimed teenage terrorist, and just has all this anger and just throws it out at people and makes it into art and um, and uh, doesn't turn it inward but turns it throws it outward which is uh, not something that women do yeah see I think like that kind of like having that anger or just you know in this kind of world where there's just constant bullshit mm -hmm. and constant fuckery and then you know you could turn it inward be depressed be kind of self-destructive Right. You know, but it's like I think also another aspect is because sometimes you have, especially back in the day, harder for women to come forward that you don't get that outlet to even have that expression. So it is it's kind of destructive. I mean, in a lot of different ways, like they don't even have an outlet to explain exactly how fucked up yeah. everything is because you just don't hear those voices. Exactly, know? exactly. And also both both women used their sexuality in these very powerful way. They owned it. Yeah, they, exactly. You know? They owned their sexuality. Yeah. yeah. Um and that was uh especially in the seventies, that was uh that was not second wave feminism. That was seen as being anti feminist. Right, so right, because Wendy Williams is in some scanty outfit cutting up things, you yeah, know. Electrical tape on her nipples. Right. And, uh, <laughs> just so off. She did her own stunts. She was just, they were using their bot. They both used their bodies and they, they owned the spaces around them. Right. Put themselves into dangerous situations and owned it. Right. Um, just, you know. Uh, just badasses. Yeah. Lydia Lunch is like, and if you don't want a dick between your legs, you got to crack that dick. <laughs> <laughs> Like her parting words at the Q and A, you know, right, right. And, you know, and, then, and then, then the name of the film I was talking about having. Why are we still having to try and protect Roe v. Wade? I mean, the the title of her film is "The War Is Never Over," and right, apparently right. that's something that th that um, it's a theme of hers. The war is never over. You're always fighting. Right. Truly, though, it's obviously very nice to have you here fighting the fight. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's what's kind of nice is that uh, I feel, you know, there's people like that. And there's also, you know, like I said, the way that you're kind of going about even spreading these stories around is really, I don't know, it's cool, for lack of a better word. It's oh. a beautiful thing, you know. 
Thank you. Thank you for letting me share them with you. We got a few minutes left. Is there anything else that we missed that you wanted to talk about or mention? Mm -hmm. Things you're doing or things that are inspiring you? Um, I just we just continue to it's continue to gather more stories and get stories out there and um, and to oh yeah, the mothers project, right? Yeah, yeah, the mothers we'll, project. We'll put a link in. Yeah, we are um, presenting at the Pop Culture Association conference in Philadelphia this April. So that's my next appearance. And you're going to give us a playlist of uh, some Utah punk rock. Utah from punk back rock. In the day, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Me um, too. Well, thank you so much for coming down, Julie, for reals. Oh, God, this was amazing. Thank you. To hear the exclusive Stark Reality playlist from Julie Turley of 80s underground Salt Lake City punk rock, check out episode 8 of Stark Reality on Mixcloud or live and direct on jasoncharles.net podcast network music shows. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. JasonCharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.